So as Sally said in her introduction earlier, I study faith-based sustainability. And some of you may know that last Friday, the United Nations Climate Change Organization issued its latest report, and it wasn't encouraging. They talked about how they're more certain than ever that what they've been saying for 20 years is true. The climate is changing, and it's going to be hard to slow it down, and there's no way we can stop it. So when you listen to the words that Maya read so beautifully today, 20 years ago our children were afraid. They're still afraid. But I think if we're honest, we're all afraid. This seems so big, so impossible. We're overwhelmed. And part of our answer to them is, we want to stop this. We want to protect you. We want to take action. And we don't know how to do it. We're overwhelmed. We're scared. We're paralyzed. This last summer, I traveled from Minnesota to Maine. I've been out to California and as far south as Virginia. And I went around the country visiting congregations, in this case churches and synagogues, where people are doing wonderful environmental work. And that has given me such hope. I wanted to share some of the things that I've been seeing with you because hope is a great antidote to fear and paralysis. One of the things that I found everywhere I went, people are scared, but they're saying, we found something that made it worthwhile to move past our fear, to do something. We all have the touchstones, the things that are so important to us, we might not take action for ourselves, but we'll take action because that thing we love is threatened. And a lot of them talked about their children the love of their children. They don't want to leave a world to their children that has problems. So over and over, people said, this is my motivation. I might not be able to find the courage to take action for myself, but for my child, there's nothing I won't try to do. Other places, they told me, it's about our heritage in this community. We needed to save it. We want this community to last into the future and our lifestyle, our way of life to be passed on to the next generation. So we had to take action to save it. So we all have these touchstones. And the thing about those touchstones is not only do they motivate us, but when we go back to the places that are special to us, to the things that we care about, Kirtland warblers and monarch butterflies and the, the stream where we fished as a child... Those things heal us and give us the strength to keep going. So those touchstones are vitally important to this work. Another thing that I heard that I thought was particularly interesting is that people were talking about the stories that help them figure out what to do, how to move forward as a faith community trying to take action. And this intrigued me because last year I met a Unitarian Universalist in Chicago by the name of Claire Butterfield, a remarkable woman. She's the director of an interfaith organization called Faith in Place. And she coordinates environmental efforts in faith communities throughout the Chicago region. She helps to coordinate the Chicago Wilderness Project where they restore watersheds and prairies. There are prairies in Chicago. Did you know that? 
little patches all over the place, and they're linking them together so that there's a corridor and that more species can survive through those connections. She told me about helping a mosque put up solar panels, and then because of that experience, she had a relationship with people in that mosque. So when a farmer from further outside the city came and said, you know, I want to grow organic meat, but I need people who want to buy it, she said, let me introduce you to these Muslims. And the conservative Christian farmer started providing meat to the Muslims, and he got invited to Ramadan dinner. And he said, it's the first time I got to interact with them as people and not as terrorists on the TV. So not only were they building environmental strength, they're building community connections. Well, Claire Butterfield made an interesting comment. She said, you know, sometimes as Unitarian, I really envy the Christians their Jesus story. Because we don't have a story about a person that we can all emulate. We don't have a story that inspires us the way Christianity has the Jesus story. We have values, and they are beautiful values, nicely depicted here on the wall. They're magnificent values that should be part of our lives. But it's really hard to rely on a value list when you're trying to find motivation and inspiration. It just doesn't work the same way. So I was interested in the way the stories that I was hearing were guiding the actions that people take. So I thought I'd share some with you. This first one, I'm cheating. India is not in my research sites. (laughs) But as some of you know, I used to be a South Asianist. I have a deep affinity for Hinduism. And if I have an opportunity to work it into any presentation, it just kind of magically shows up. (laughs) Krishna, most popular deity in all of Hindu mythology. Basically, the Justin Bieber of the Hindu gods. (laughs) There are whole poems about Krishna's hair. He's called the bushy-haired one, and they celebrate his flowing locks and his curly locks. And Here in the United States, most of the time when we think of Krishna, we think of the Bhagavad Gita and this great philosophical discussion about abstract meanings of suffering and action and this. But in India, the most popular stories of Krishna are about his childhood and his youth. When he was growing up as members of a a cowherding family in a little village in the forest of Vrindavan. And as a toddler, he's always getting into trouble. And his mother thinks he's so cute, she just can't punish him no matter how much he deserves it. He steals the butter. Makes a real mess, actually. (laughs) Because to steal the butter, you've got to build a pyramid. And you get up to the top to reach the butter. Your mother hung from the ceiling in in the clay jar. And you break the jar to get the butter out of the bottom of it. And it flows down on you and all of your friends. And they're a real mess. I seem to have a messy food theme today. So when devotees of Krishna, when they celebrate their religion, one of the most important things for them is to make a pilgrimage to the forest of Vrindavan, which exists. It's in north-central India. And people go there to walk in the footsteps of the god and to celebrate what he brought into the world. He brought the teachings of love and mysticism. And they go there to recall those by being there and connecting with him personally in the very place where he walked. And when they get there... They discover this forest is not a very big forest anymore. It's been cut down over the years. And there's a lot of pollution. And the river, the Yamuna River that runs along the edge of that forest, is horribly polluted. Now, as many of you know, rivers in India are goddesses. And they purify people and heal people. Yamuna River, 
is the goddess Yamuna. Her brother is Lord Yama, the Lord of Death. She protects people from death. And the way you connect to her and get her blessings is to go to the river and make offerings and sip the water and become purified by it. But people who come to the river now, they see trash floating in the river. And there's also the waste they can't see. Because before the Yamuna River can get to Vrindavan, as it leaves the Himalayan mountains and it comes downstream, it reaches the city of Delhi. And there is no drop of water that enters the city of Delhi and comes out the other end without first flowing through an industrial plant or a sewer pipe. So one woman who went on a pilgrimage to Vrindavan, she said, I went to bathe in the river to seek healing. And I looked at that river and I realized I could not sip those waters because I would be sipping the bodily waste of a person up in Delhi. And there's nothing more polluting to a Hindu than the excrement from another person. So the devotees of Krishna are in pain. Their sacred place is being polluted. But because they love that place, this has motivated them to start cleaning it up. So they have campaigns. This year they expected half a million people to march to clean up the Yamuna River. And the, the temples where people worship Lord Krishna, they now have tree nurseries. And they give away saplings so that people can replant the forest of Vrindavan. And they can take saplings home so they have that personal connection to that forest to remind them to care for forests in other parts of India because actually the entire land is the embodiment of God and should be cared for. So this has been going on a dozen years and they've cleaned up a tremendous amount of the pollution and they've started repurposing the pollution, turning it into crafts, what can be turned into new things, new products, to actually build industry for people in villages. And the river is getting cleaner. But the story I wanted to focus on here is a story that helps to explain why they're doing the actions in the way they do. One of the stories of Krishna describes a time when the river was polluted during Krishna's childhood because there was a great serpent, a naga, that lived in that river. His name was Kaliya. A great multi-headed naga who was poisonous. And because he lived in the river, the river became polluted. And when the cows would go down to the river to drink the water, they would die. Krishna's living in a cow-herding family. This is unacceptable. So he goes down to the river and he dives into the water and he starts to wrestle with Kaliya and he starts beating him up. And you have these wonderful images in Indian art where you have the serpent coming out of the water and he's this multi-headed serpent and there's little Krishna standing on his head, dancing. But then the Naga's wives, the Naganis, they come up and they pray to Krishna and they say, please spare Kaliya's life. He did not cause this pollution out of malice. He can't help being poisonous. It's who he is. By his very presence, he caused this as a side effect, but he wasn't doing it to hurt people. Please spare his life. So Krishna spares his life and banishes him and tells him, go find a little pond somewhere that's not connected to a water supply and live there where you can be isolated. This story is being repurposed to describe how to approach the need to clean up Yamuna River. The multiple heads of the serpent representing multiple sources of pollution, industry, sewers, 
waste runoff from farms, people throwing trash in the river. None of those people said, oh, yeah, the goal of my life is to pollute this river. It's not maliciousness. It's side effects of other things that people are trying to do. Flush toilets, it's a good thing. (laughs) But not if the city never hooked up the sewer plant properly. Industries that are building the resources that Indians need to live healthy, modern lives, but they haven't been regulated properly because nobody thought about the downstream costs. So they're going out and they're saying, hey, we know you didn't mean for this to happen. You're not evil people. You're not trying to pollute our sacred forest. You respect Yamuna. You respect Krishna. But you didn't know this was happening, and we need to work together. We have a common problem. Let's work to solve this problem. Now, to be perfectly honest, there is one group of people they kind of think might be evil, and that would be the politicians who don't follow through on anything. Sort of a worldwide theme. Um, Because the city of Delhi has been sued and lost in court, and they still haven't hooked up the sewer system because there's no money to do it. Half a million people marching shows there's the will to gather the money to have the taxes to do that so that this doesn't happen anymore. So the story is guiding the action. So it's not us versus them. We hate you for doing this to us. It's we're all in this together. We recognize the causes of this are actually ignorance. The causes of this are unintended consequences. Let's work together to solve this as a community. An American story. This is Tangier Island in Chesapeake Bay. Tangier Island is basically a series of three sand spits in the midst of the bay. And the people who settled on this island came from a part of England. Five families settled here originally, and still their five names dominate the 600 residents of this community. And they all were Methodists. They still practice a very traditional form of Methodist Christianity. A minister comes over a few times from the mainland to preach, but basically the people get together and they do Bible study together, and it's very traditional, communal-based, evangelical Methodist religion. Well, Tangier Island has a problem because the people there make their living from the water as fishermen, and particularly they catch soft-shelled crabs. Now, some of you may know I'm a vegetarian, so when I went to visit this island, imagine my experience as I'm sitting across the table from my husband who's got the two pieces of white bread with the little crab legs sticking out from it, and he's having lunch, and I'm thinking, I'm just not looking. (laughs) But that is their industry. It works for them. My husband tells me it's delicious. I'll never know. The problem is the ecosystem of Chesapeake Bay is collapsing. And it's not collapsing because these people overfished. It's collapsing because of runoff from major cities like Washington, (laughs) D.C., Baltimore. They're not even in Virginia. It's collapsing because of runoff from farms upstream, phosphorus and sediment that make their way into the streams and go downstream. It's collapsing because the temperature of the water has changed because power plants have to cool themselves and then shunt warmer water into the bay. All kinds of things are affecting the ecosystem of this bay. But the side effect is there are fewer fish and fewer crabs. And in order to preserve the existing population, when we regulate, our regulation industries go in and they say to the people who catch the fish and crabs, we're going to put a limit on how many you can catch. And the people, the watermen, are saying, you're destroying our way of life. You're taking away our livelihoods. How are we supposed to survive? Our children are not going to be able to live on this island and inherit our boats and go on with the work that we've been doing for generations here because you're putting these limits on us, and we didn't cause the problem. 
So there's a bit of a conflict between the environmental regulation people and the local watermen. Some of you probably think this, you've heard this story before in other places. This dynamic changed when a person who was doing research on the conflict, who happened to be an evangelical Christian, preached a sermon in the Methodist church and talked about how God made this great creation and gave human beings responsibility for being stewards of this creation, to tend the garden. And God set out all of these rules about how people are supposed to take care of things. If you've ever read the first five books of the Bible, this is an agricultural society, and there are a lot of rules about what you do with your animals, what you do with your fields, all kinds of regulations about making sure that your crops continue to grow year after year. You follow them periodically. You don't cut down trees just because you're in conflict with other human beings. The trees are to be protected. So she preached this sermon, and she talked to them about how as Christians, they had an obligation that Jesus came to say, you should be in right relationship with God, and that means following God's rules. And they were believers in this. And 53 of those watermen, they took it as an altar call. They went up to the front of the church and they pledged that they would protect the environment of the Chesapeake Bay. And they tied red streamers to their boats, symbolizing the blood of Jesus. And they stopped throwing trash overboard on their boats. And they cleaned up the environment on their island. They started working with the environmental agencies because they couldn't fish. And the environmental agency said, we can offer you alternative employment if you help us with our scientific studies. So they were working together instead of being in conflict, trying to find a common solution. And then these watermen had a brilliant idea. They started sending delegations upstream to talk to the church people in the farming communities, fishermen to farmer, worker to worker. Let us tell you what you are doing to us. Love your neighbor. Your neighbors are being harmed by what you're doing in your community. A conversation that goes really differently than the conversation from the environmental expert who comes in. So the watershed is still in bad shape. But these people, this story, this one mattered to me because it made me re-examine some of my assumptions. Like many of you, I'm not entirely fond of the sacrificial Jesus idea. So it was a, an eye-opener to me to hear a story where people who are saying, you know, I'm not the cause of this, I shouldn't have to fix it, could turn to the Jesus story and said, Jesus was the innocent person who sacrificed for the good of the whole. We too, we may not be the real cause of this, but we have a duty to the whole. We can do something to help the whole. We can make this effort because we're followers of Jesus. So that red ribbon symbolizing blood symbolized that Christians actually have a sense of an obligation to sacrifice on behalf of the whole. So I had to rethink my attitude toward that story, which was a good thing. Ultimately, this community will not survive. Three foot of sea level rise, they will be underwater. But in this process, they're creating new options for themselves. They're starting to think outside the box. They're building relationships. And when they have to move, I hope that those relationships will lead them to be able to recreate their communities in some form elsewhere. A Unitarian Universalist story. The first Universalist Church of Rockland, Maine, originally established in 1874. This obviously is not the original church. So I traveled to Rockland, Maine to talk to these people. 
because they had a wonderful story. Back in 2005, they decided to seek Green Sanctuary certification, and they decided local food would be their social justice project. And serendipitously, about that time, they were introduced to a young couple who wanted to start a community-supported agricultural venture, the very first one in the state of Maine. So in 2006, this church and this couple worked together, and the church became the market site. Fifteen shares purchasing food. And by the second year, 45 shares. By the third year, 130 shares. And by then, not just church people, but people from outside the community coming to the church to pick up their food. They finally capped it at 200. This young farming couple earned enough money to buy the land they were leasing. Well, in 2007, as this was getting going and proving to be a success, one of the church members on the Green Sanctuary Committee said, you know, it would be really neat if we could include fish in this somehow, because Rockland used to be the heart of the main fishing industry. Now, they no longer do fish processing there, but there are still boat fishermen along the coast, and they wondered how they were doing and what was going on in those communities. Rockland's not right on the coast. Maine has got all these funny little fingers sticking out, so the fishermen are out on the ends, and Rockland is in a bit. They got a family from Port Clyde, a fishing family, to come up and give a presentation at the church talking about the state of the fisheries. And that family talked about how they were struggling because they're small boat fishermen with a limited range, and they're in competition with these big trawlers that are owned by industrial corporations. And if there's a problem in the fishery, the small boat fishermen can't go long distances to get the fish, and the fisheries are collapsing in the Atlantic. The big boats, they just moved to a different region. And they're subsidized, and the small boats aren't. They can't just take out a loan from year to year and expect to survive. And on top of that, when they want to sell their fish, they have to go all the way down to Portland, Maine, and these boats do not get a lot of miles to the gallon. (laughs) They have to go all the way down to Portland, Maine for the auction and sell their fish on the auction, competing at the global market levels, and the price of fish had gone below a dollar a pound. It didn't even cover their fuel bills. So what are they supposed to do? Catch more fish. If you can't make a living off this many, you've got to catch this many. Well, that's not good for the sustainable fishery, is it? So they described this problem, and the church said, well, is there a way we could add fish to the CSA? And it's like, well, no, we're really not set up for that. But a year later, the fishermen formed a cooperative, and they decided they wanted to start a community-supported fishery. They had a problem. Lots of fish, no market. So they went back to the church, and they said, can you help us with this? And the church people said, yeah, we think we can. But you have to understand, it's going to start small, but have faith it will grow. That's what we learned from our CSA. Start small, it will grow. And the fishermen said, okay, let's start with the winter shrimp season three weeks away. We need to line up enough people to sell 100 pounds of shrimp a week. And the church is three weeks, 100 pounds of shrimp, 10-pound shares. Okay, half-pound shares, 5-pound, 10-pound, 100. Yeah, we can try for that. <laughs> a week ahead of time, they've only got 70 pounds lined up. But the church said, we're confident this will work. We had this experience. The fishermen said, we're going to trust you. They got up to 130 pounds. Now, that is not enough to support 12 boats. But it meant every week... One or two fishermen were dropping off at the church, and they knew their fuel bills were covered. And more than that, it meant they knew the community cared about them. And then more people signed on. They got a new drop-off point. 
And then during the summer, they added fish. And more people signed up. They were up to four drop-off points, and a couple of restaurants started buying direct from the fishermen. And then a co-op was selling their stuff. And today they have 11 drop-off points, restaurants buying direct, and they have a mail-order business, so you can actually go online and figure out what you order. You could actually order from here, and they'll ship it to you. It might not be as fresh as if you could buy it there. So this snowballed. And then the church said, well, that worked really well. Now, how do we actually deal with reducing greenhouse gas emissions? And they started a project, largely because they realized how leaky the windows were in the basement of the church, of doing storm window inserts on the interior of the window, which only cost about $14 to build. And it worked so well on the church that some church members said, hey, could we do that for our houses? And so they did the houses. They thought, well, this is a good idea. And they expanded it. Now they do these community builds where they work with other churches and they get volunteers to come in and put together these window inserts and they go out and they install them. You could do a whole house for about $200, which is probably the cost of one Anderson window. <laughs> and now they're doing 3,000 of these a year. Start small and it will grow. By the way, this is a bag of shrimp. One of the challenges is, okay, you're buying shrimp. Whole shrimp. I had to teach people how to peel the shrimp. And then it turns out everybody's got one shrimp recipe. Ten pounds a week, one recipe. Shrimp freeze really well, I'm told. But they had to put together a church cookbook of all shrimp recipes in order to deal with this. So looking at these stories, you might say, you know, each one of them is kind of small individually in terms of its impact on climate change. But these give me hope for three reasons. First of all, at that Universalist church, when I talked to Frank Mundo, who's in charge of the window project, he said, I was so discouraged. I was in despair about the environment. The more I learned, the more I despaired. And even when we started the CSA, I'm thinking, okay, local food, cool. How much of a dent does that really make in climate change? But then we started this window project, and it expanded, and we're directly dealing with greenhouse gas emissions, and we're saving energy, and we're making it more affordable for people to live in Maine in spite of our winters. We're getting ready for the future. He said, we're doing something, and that gives me hope. And another person in his church also said, in doing is hope. By taking action, these people have discovered they have the ability to change their communities. And that gives them the strength to keep going. Another thing that you could talk about here is the stories that are they're rooted in their communities. So you have the Krishna story for those people. In the Unitarian Church, it's actually their own story. Our success with the CSA is the story that guides what we do afterwards. And I thought, wow, people's church needs a story. Where do we find one? If I ask you for stories from the world religions, somebody's going to tell me, Aristotle, Socrates, we're going to hear, I follow Lord Buddha, goddess, I'm a Wiccan. I mean, we've got the whole range. We're not going to get a common story from the great world traditions, are we? But we have Carolyn Bartlett Crane. She's our common story. Carolyn Bartlett Crane, who started out 100 years ago here at People's Church, and she said, this church cannot be a place where we are merely to come together once a week and enjoy our doctrine and congratulate ourselves that we have a faith free from superstition. We must do something for others as well as for ourselves. And the more we have done for others, the more in the end we shall find we have done for ourselves. 
The second thing that gives me such hope from these stories is that in every one of these faith communities, these congregations have reached beyond their walls to find the resources, to make the connections, to do things in their community. And that's what Carolyn Bartlett Crane taught here at People's Church a 100 years ago. She looked around Kalamazoo, and she was 80 years ahead of her time. She understood environmental justice. She said people need to live, work, play, and learn in clean environments. And she worked for those things, for food hygiene, for clean water supplies, for decent housing. And we're still doing that here at People's Church. She believed in educational opportunities. People's Church started the first kindergarten in town. And when KPS finally started a kindergarten, People's Church donated the furniture for it. Now we've been working to help with the preschool projects. We're doing all of this work here because we've got that trajectory. That's our story that we can build on to motivate us to figure out how to go forward. The third thing that gives me hope is that these stories have ripples that move outward and inspire other people. This map, which is now outdated, every one of those dots is a congregation doing environmental work. And the different colors represent different traditions, mainline Protestant, Catholic, Jewish communities, and evangelical communities, all doing work to help the environment, to clean up water supplies, to protect biodiversity, to reduce energy consumption. The CSF, started by the Port Clyde fishermen in Maine working with the Unitarian Church, they heard about that in Gloucester, Massachusetts. And the Fishermen's Wives Association in Gloucester played the role of the church, went out and asked people, would you like to buy direct from the fishermen? And they said yes. Today there are between 800 and 1,000 people, depending on the season, buying direct from the fishermen in Gloucester, Massachusetts. More CSFs have started down further along the Atlantic coast in the Carolinas. And the BBC heard about this, and they came over, and they went to Port Clyde, Maine, and to Gloucester, Massachusetts, and they made a film about this, and they showed it in the UK, and now the CSF idea is catching on over in England. Ripples from Port Clyde, Maine, have spread clear across the Atlantic to help fishermen find a way to market directly to people so the fishermen can farm or can, can get the fish more sustainably. The people can support sustainable fishing. The people get fresher fish. The fishermen get a better price. Win-win all around, even for the fish, because they're not being taken at an unsustainable level. The ripples that move outward give me hope. So my hope for today <laughs> is that by sharing these stories with you, I've also given you Something to counterbalance the news from last Friday about climate change, that if we start small, it will grow. But we must start because in doing is hope. Thank you.